the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, Aubrey and I are going to talk about the fascinating next episode in that Mars Hill podcast. And then we're joined by Josh Larson, editor and film critic at Think Christian. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, happy Thursday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on this uh, overcast, rainy Thursday afternoon. Aubrey, how are we today? How are you doing? How's your day going? Ah, so many questions. Uh, All the same questions. Yes, day's going good. Uh, uh, we we have a bit of an emotional Thursday evening. We, we're doing a funeral uh, this evening for a stillborn baby. So oh, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those a day that you're honored to be someone's pastor and a day that's just sad for everyone, but praying that God shows up as, as he will, you know, in this, um, but you know, it's, it's definitely one of those kind of heavier, heavier Thursdays. Yeah. Well, with that in mind later, I didn't even know you were doing that today, but I had a question for you later about faith in time of crisis. Mm. So I think that will fit, uh, that will fit us very well. But Aubrey, where we want to start the show today uh, is our kind of weekly reflection Upon this new Christianity Today podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church. Uh, I'm a bit obsessed right now with this podcast, and I know you are as well. So addicting. It is so well done. We talked to Kate Shellnut about it last week, hoping to have Mike Cosper on who, who made it, who kind of produced it, and he's the voice behind it. But the, the gist behind this podcast, for those of you who haven't been listening either to us or to the podcast, is it looks at Mars Hill Church out of Seattle, which was one of the most influential, most well-known, fastest growing church plants led by uh, should I call him Brash? Led by a Brash <laughs> Pastor. A, I feel like that's a kind word, actually. Brash. Yes, by the name of Mark Driscoll. And uh, Mark Driscoll came along in the late 90s and then into the early 2000s, again, known as like, you know, I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to, you know, it was just kind of that feel. And this thing uh, was kind of the edgy, kind of uh, well-known um you know, church plant that like people like you and I, who then started churches, kind of thought to ourselves, I don't know. Are we supposed to do what Driscoll did? <laughs> like, totally, it's totally. Of, uh, it's kind of that move. You and I, I think, have both heard him in person. He yep. is uh, something. Yep. Uh, but what ends up the the point of this podcast is to try to figure out what happened because eventually, not only does Mark Driscoll kind of flame out and lose his job at Mars Hill, but after he left, within a month, the entire church organization ceased to exist, which is unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And now since then, Mark Driscoll has just kind of reappeared and started kind of a different feeling church from Mars Hill in the Scottsdale, Arizona area. And uh, and so this podcast is not just looking at Mars Hill, although this last episode was solely focused on Mars Hill. But some of the past ones have asked, how did we get to the point yeah, of church yeah. planting and how did we get to the point of mega churches? And so this was episode three 
If you have not listened to them, they're easy listens. They are like 45 minutes. And they're uh, so engaging. Yeah, so it goes, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. But, uh, Aubrey, I literally listened to it this morning. But uh, I would love to know just your feeling. You, This one much more was about what actually happened in the early days of Mars Hill. And it was really striking. Yeah, the the subtitle of this episode, episode three, was called It Takes Tenacity to Plant a Church, But Unchecked Tenacity Has Consequences. Mm. And, I, you know, I, I let me tell you what I what I think. And then let me tell you just my own experience planting a church. So part of it, it was really hard to listen to. It was um, some of it was just the way he was engaging with people was hard to listen to. But I think there was an undercurrent that where it seemed like Mark Driscoll began to think people were against him, right? Yes. Anyone who disagreed 100%. with him was against him or, um, or just generally that it was him against the world. And I know as a church player, no, Kevin and I, and I know you too, Brian, like our churches are small scale compared to what Mars Hill was. So it's not totally fair to compare it. However, as a church planter, you can sometimes be tempted to feel like the world is on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, I think for me, listening to that podcast, I want to I want to look at myself in the mirror and I want to say, okay, I know I'm not Mark Driscoll. I know I know I'm not that brash as you said. Right. Um, but is there anything in me that is beginning to stink of that? Like, is there anything mm. in me that thinks, oh, I'm entitled, or oh, they don't know how hard this job is, or if they disagree with renewal, that like I just want to be very mindful that I don't even get near that frame of mind because it can't, I mean, church leadership is wonderful and beautiful and church planting is amazing. Like you see God build his church and it's so incredible. But as you and I know, and as all pastors listening know, it's exhausting. And you can, if you, if you aren't careful to continue to remember, this is the Lord's church and you are simply a servant of Jesus you can't, I can see how some of this stuff could creep in. Again, he's an extreme yeah. example. So that's taking it to like a narcissistic degree. But like, where are those little seeds in me where Satan's kind of getting in? I, I want to be mindful of that now. What about you? Yeah. You know, what struck me, those are really good things that you brought up. What struck me was how Driscoll's theology, his view of the city, uh, his view, like you said, of people who disagree with him, it all kept changing. Yeah, and that was interesting. It, right. And as it changed, so did his friendships and so did the direction of the church that it was like so centered on one person that when Mark Driscoll decided to become like neo reformed, like ultra reformed, right. the the language around the church changed. When uh, when Driscoll decided, like you said, that no longer were we trying to influence the city, but now we're uh, trying to battle the yeah. city and win it over yeah. for Jesus. And they are our enemy. Right. Their posture is a church change. Right. And there is this idea of like everything was about him. Yes, that's it. And and therefore everyone's hopes were in him. And you I, I don't want to ruin it. So go back and listen. But how the episode ends with the story of his administrative mm, assistant. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah. And and really hard. And and even that uh that there was some audio that he uh, from a breakout session he did right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So we were talking 2001 and the like the uh, the desire to be argumentative and to be 
um, kind of on the edge, yeah. which just struck me as odd. Yes. And then all these people put their hopes in him, That's not it. so much the church. Right. Uh, and it all changed. I did think one other important point, it added nuance and, and, uh, that not everybody's either bad or good mm. uh, was that really powerful story of how he shepherded and cared for people, especially early on in really impressively deep ways. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it, it, it added another layer to him, but also made you wonder, like, what happened? Just what happened? And so what's the takeaway for us says just normal? Because, yeah. again, the danger of this podcast is to just become voyeuristic and right. go, look at that crazy guy, right. look at that church. But like you already said, there's a lot to take from that. So maybe put a bow on it for people. Yeah, I mean, I think two angles that come to mind immediately. We tend, as Christians, we just do this, we tend to put our hope and our trust in a person, right? Like in mm -hmm. a Mark Driscoll. Or we just idolize them because they're so cool and they're doing this cool stuff. So I think it, it's really important for, for Christians, for us to guard our hearts protect ourselves against putting our faith and trust in the person mm -hmm. instead of in the Lord that they serve. So again, we've talked about this word. You can admire people. You can be inspired by people, but ultimately the worship belongs to God. The adoration belongs to God. So let's just be careful of that. And then I think as church leaders, like Brian, you and I have talked about this before, like we need to sort of hearken back to what it is to shepherd and not yes. be celebrities, like shepherding over celebrities, feeding God's sheep, not filling our stadiums. Like this is the call mm. for us that we have to be mindful of. That's a really good call. Again, if you have not listened to it, I just can't encourage. And I've got I got no skin in the game. Right. You and I aren't getting like. Anything yeah, right. Right. We listener. just love it. We just love it. <laughs> it's just really well done. And it gives a slice, uh, a view, kind of a window into part of the evangelical culture that exists today. Where did it come yeah. from? How did we yeah. get here? Uh, it's really, really well done. Again, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's put out by Christianity Today. You can find that wherever it is. You get your podcast. Well, coming up next, I'm excited to talk to Josh Larson. He is the editor and film critic at Think Christian. It's a website that, that writes about a lot of pop culture from a Christian point of view. He's also the author of a book called Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longing. Aubrey, I promise not to ask him about Black Widow. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving the show if that happens, just so everyone knows <laughs> I will not be here. <laughs> but we're going to ask him about all sorts of other things as Josh Larson joins us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the co-host of a radio show podcast called Film Spotting, also editor and film critic at Think Christian. Uh, his name is Josh Larson. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me, Brian. Good to talk to you, too, Aubrey. Um, this This will be fun. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on. If uh, I've told you off air, maybe my favorite interview we ever did was when we had you on about two years ago to talk about the uh, the theology of the office. <laughs> and so yes. uh, that was uh, <laughs> that was good times. But hey, Josh, before we get going, I uh, want to give you a chance for our people to get to know you a little bit. So why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? 
Sure. Yeah. As you've already kind of pointed to, I wear a couple of hats, but the full-time job here in Chicago is as editor of Think Christian. We're at thinkchristian.net, and it's basically um, a faith and pop culture website. We produce a number of articles each week. We also have a podcast, Think Christian, and we just try to um, be a gathering place for pop culture nerds, people who love movies, TV, music, um, who are also devoted Christians, and uh, provide a space to talk about uh, what those things we're listening to and watching look like, sound like through the lens of our faith. So that's what I do most days. But Film Spotting is more of a mainstream um, podcast and radio program for audience of film fans that I've been doing for a number of years as well, coming up on 10 years now. So, um, so yeah, it's nice to kind of have a foot in both of those worlds, the mainstream media, film criticism world, and then the Christian one with Think Christian. Awesome. Josh, I'm sitting here listening to and realizing that you might have my dream job. I love my, <laughs> I love my job now, but I'm like feeling a little bit envious and jealous of you. So well done, sir. Okay. Yes. You know, it, it was it was a dream when I was in middle school, high school. Yes. Was, so I do feel quite fortunate to Living be able to spend a lot of time. Yeah. Watching movies. That's awesome. Um, Josh, over at Think Christian, we've heard it uh, said and written that there is no such thing as secular. Can you explain that to our audience? Yeah, I've got to credit uh, Stephen Coster, who uh, I think Christian is uh, one program of Reframe Ministries, a larger media ministry. And um, he hired me about 11 years ago now. And that was kind of as we thought about what Think Christian could be and talked about what we wanted to do. Uh, he threw that out there and we were all like, yeah, that is that is it. It's it's kind of rooted in um, Kuyperian theology. So Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch mm-hmm. theologian um, who, you know, talked about things like common grace and, um, you know, his his statement that um, all things belong to Christ. So mm-hmm. there is nothing in this world that uh, isn't under God, under God's sovereignty. And there are different ways of thinking about that. It can be triumphalist, but we're more of, um, you know, wanting to be appreciative mm-hmm. of culture and looking for the places we can find God's truth in all of culture, not baptizing it, not saying that, you know, we should throw out discernment. That's definitely something we do at Think Christian, but really taking this approach of looking for that truth um, from an appreciative perspective and posture. That's great. And That's kind great. of along those same lines, <clears throat> Josh, you wrote a book called a few years ago called Movies Are Prayers, How Films Voice Our Deepest Longings. Uh, can you expound on a little bit? Because that's a fascinating idea that movies are, are prayers. How, how do those link together? And uh, just to help us understand that concept a little more. Yeah, it's really rooted in the same sort of theology is looking for God's truth in other places. Um, but this may be reversing the direction. So if God can speak to us, um, through ways we might not expect in addition to scripture, liturgy, those sorts of things, I ask the question, can we speak to God? Um, can we pray, which is what speaking to God is mm-hmm. in ways that are yes, in church, through our devotional prayers, those sorts of very good things. But is there a way that movies might pray for us or alongside mm. us and and not just movies where they have obvious theological themes, um, but, uh, you know, movie musicals, um, you know, action movies and all sorts of films that the filmmakers might not say we were ever really thinking of this. Yeah. But because the relationship 
that we have with the arts as people appreciate the arts, it's interpretive, right? So can we have an experience through a film um, that functions the way, you know, we experience prayer, the way we offer praise to God, the way we yearn for God, the way we lament mm-hmm. um, the brokenness of the world? Certainly there are movies that do that. Yep. So I set about looking through all those different types of prayer and then exploring different movies that might uh, be good examples of how they work as forms of prayer as well. Oh, I love that. Um, Josh, how did you become so passionate about movies specifically? Was there a film that sort of sparked that passion for movies as prayers? Um, You know, for that, um, I became obsessed with movies as a kid, you know, a movie going family. That's how it started. But it really was about 2010, 2009, I would say. At the time, I was a film critic for um, the Naperville Sun here in the suburbs of Chicago. And as many newspapers were going through major transitions at that time, um, I was kind of taken off the film beat and had this empty space to think about film differently because my day-to-day job was looking differently. And so I had started to write for Think Christian at the time. So this kind of gave me the opportunity to really pursue, I guess you could say, Christian film criticism and ask myself, what does that look like? What might that be? And that's when this idea of, you know, thinking about the way movies might function as prayer came to mind. And I thought, okay, I'm going to pursue this as kind of a side project and see, see if this holds true. Josh, what do you say to those parents, those Christian parents out there who are more fearful of films? They're more, you know, what is, what is just some advice you would give them about? Yeah, you know what? I understand. Here's some boundaries maybe that you think are healthy, but here's some encouragements as to why you want to let your kids start watching films and start to experience that side of pop culture. Yeah, I'd start by, you know, not dismissing their concerns. As I said, uh, discernment is a crucial part of the Christian life when we live in a broken world. And so I think that is um, that is wise and good. But how do we practice that discernment? Uh, I, you know, grew up kind of in the height of the culture wars where mm. Christian film criticism meant uh, literally counting the swear words in a movie. And, and that mm. would be where it would stop. Um, and I think that um, God has given us artistic abilities, creative abilities and art um, that we ignore if that's where we limit our discernment to. Um, so I would say that, it, you know, encourage your kids to look for good art. So it's not mm-hmm. so much safe art, but good art. And I think what tends to happen is there is, you know, some good art that has difficult content in it. I I will admit, oftentimes the beautiful is right next to the, you know, the bad. Yeah. Um, But generally, if you're going to be discerning and look for that good art, it's going to lead you towards beauty. um, And it's going to enrich in your understanding of um, what the world is like and how the gospel specifically and uniquely responds to it. So Mm. at the end of the day, if you're doing careful discernment, I really think that it can strengthen um, you know, your faith and your children's faith as they grow up and think about how to live as a Christian in the world um, and what that means, in, how it's reflected in the movies that they watch, too. Mm. Oh, it's so good. Um, Josh, can I ask you, can I just like throw a recent movie at you and ask you to do some of this sort of gospel movie work for us? Would that be okay? Oh boy. Okay, let's try it. I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to get an easy one that I feel like there's a lot of gospel hope. What about um, uh, In the Heights, the film version mm. of the musical? Or or if you'd rather do like Fast and Furious 9, like go crazy for us. <laughs> okay. Well, Fast and Furious, you know, I wrote about uh, Fast and Furious 7 and uh, a couple years ago now and how the way it creates order and beauty out of chaos reflects the creation story. So I can okay. go that way with you. 
but let me give you, I'm glad you mentioned In the Heights because we just published yesterday um, a really great article by Emmanuel Padilla. Um, he's here in Chicago as well. Looking at In the Heights, um, the title of it is In the Heights and the Hope of Exiles. So he looks at this community in Washington Heights, New York City, made up of immigrants from, you know, various uh, Latin American and island nations who have come to this place. And in a way, they can, they feel like exiles. They're trying to create mm. a new home um, and be true to their past and their heritage, um, but also create a new space for their families to live and thrive and flourish. And for Emmanuel, he said this very much echoed. Um, what Jeremiah told the Israelites um, mm. when they were exiled to Babylon and um, the charge to, you know, uh, do good by the city that you find yourself in, yet still remember who you are, that balance, that really difficult balance. And so that's something that, you know, not having that sort of background and that heritage didn't jump out to me as much. So I was really grateful to have Emmanuel Padilla kind of look at that. His own family is from Puerto Rico, um, moved to New York City in 1951. His grandmother led them. And he could kind of make that that really nice theological comparison. And what it does is it makes that story of the Israelites uh, in Babylon resonate in a new way for us today. Oh, that's so that. good. Josh Larson, again, uh, at Think Christian, editor and film critic there, host and producer of the Think Christian podcast. All right. So uh, we're not going to talk about Black Widow because I will lose a co-host if we that's do right. that. I will be out. I will she ghost will, you uh, guys. She will quit on me here if yeah. we do that. But I am. I've People who listen to this show know that my family, we've watched all the Marvel movies within like the last four or five months. Uh, Aubrey has a, uh, I would call it a near obsession with the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe. I mean, a love. I have, a, I have a very reasonable love. You do, for the but MCU. Josh, I, I would love to know, in your opinion, why do we as a culture love superheroes? What is it about superheroes and kind of these big movies that that do so well and that we love as a culture? Oh, wow. There's, you know, and we are in the height of it, aren't we? With um, mm -hmm. not even just the, the MCU, but also the DC films mm -hmm. we have. And, you know, it's it's it is the defining cultural um, product. It really is a product with Disney behind it. But these are stories that do compel us. And and I'm a MCU fan overall as well. I think they they do these movies. I think we're fortunate that these are being done as well as they um they are. They're not hack jobs, um, yes. which they yeah. could be being yeah. genre films. Why do they appeal? You know, there are probably a lot of reasons um, for, you know, for general audiences. But I think if you apply some theology to this, it it can go a couple different ways. I know people like to look for Christ figures in superheroes. I think that's probably most often lent towards Superman. I think that can get dicey. A lot of times um, it limits our understanding of Christ. Uh, if we're just looking for, you know, someone who's otherworldly and dies. Uh, I think there's you know, a little bit, a little bit <laughs> yeah. more than that to it, but I get that. I get that impulse. So it's the Christ figure thing. It's also, you know, and here's maybe a negative theological reason. We like to see ourselves as gods, right? Mm. I mean, that was, that was the basic problem in the garden of Eden. So what's, what's more appealing than a story where the hero has godlike powers? So it's us, but greater. Um, and as I said, you know, there could be some, some dangerous theology there, but there's the flip side of that. And I think some of the Marvel movies are particularly good at that is when our heroes in these movies are proven, um, to fail 
or yeah. to have weaknesses despite their powers. Um, and I think that's what's interesting. Or how about, you know, uh, I don't want to spoil any any for you, Brian, but, you know, if someone like uh, Captain America in a movie that I think you've probably gotten to at this point decides to give up his powers, you know, that's what, right. mm-hmm. what yeah. does that say? Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think is can show us that there is still a gap between these heroes and our God. Um, and, and there's something that resonates with us as Christians in seeing that happen. And then we identify with these superheroes in different ways. You know, we can see how how we are created in God's image, but we are not God. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's good. That's so good. Josh, um, one of the things that we talk about here a lot on The Common Good are um, racial injustice and also lament. And you recently wrote a piece called 10 Pieces of Pop Culture Lamenting Racial Injustice. And I'd be curious if you could just tell our audience, I guess you didn't recently write, it might have been a year ago, but tell us some of the pop culture lamenting, you know, pieces of art that we need to be interacting with as Christians. Yeah, that we did publish last year, which, as you know, um, was a summer of reckoning, as it should have been, Mm -hmm. um, with uh, so many um, black Americans being killed uh, by police, uh, in many cases unarmed. And, you know, we we just thought as as think at Think Christian, how can we speak to this through the lens of pop culture? How can we look at what pop culture has to say about this deep, um, deep sin? In the world. And so that piece that you referenced, uh, Aubrey, is actually a collection. Uh, I just kind of put together as editor of Think Christian, you know, I put together um, a collection of some of the articles we had written over the years that spoke to this because this this is something that erupted um, last summer, but obviously has has forever been with us. Right. Um, and so I'm fortunate to have a group of writers um, from different backgrounds, I think, Christian, who um, have been writing about this in instances like a movie called Queen and Slim, Queen and Slim that came out mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago, which directly dramatizes a police shooting in- instance. And mm-hmm. uh, Dustin Markell wrote about, you know, how it recalls the biblical fugitive on the run Um, theme because the characters there have to end up going on the run. We also have um, a piece why white Christians need to catch up with Kendrick Lamar, written by Xavier Ramey, another Chicagoan. And he kind of looks through the music of the rapper rapper Kendrick Lamar, who often speaks from a very explicit Christian perspective um, about his past and the racism he has experienced. And so there's a bunch of articles that we collected there. Catherine Freeman, another great writer we work with, wrote about Black Klansmen, the Spike Lee film. Um, and so, yeah, I would point people to that on the Think Christian website if they're looking for a place to start. Just kind of asking, what has pop culture had to say about systemic racism and specifically how might Christian theology respond to that? That's good. Josh, what about um, stuff that's explicitly Christian? So, Christ, you know, there's Christian music, Christian films, and it's always the, the, the thought process has always been like things that, that are Christian labeled things are kind of lesser in terms of quality. But now we have, we have Dallas Jenkins on here a bunch. He kind of is trying to change that narrative with The Chosen. Uh, wonder, uh, what are your thoughts just on just that genre of Christian film, Christian TV? And do you see it getting better? What do you think about that whole genre? 
Yeah, it's something I try not to speak to too much, to be honest, just because I don't have a lot of experience with it. And that's not meant to be dismissive of it. It's just uh, I alluded to, you know, go. I was, grew up in a movie going household. So yeah. we were attending the mainstream movies, you know, and, and I didn't really have much exposure growing up. And then my professional career started at, as I said, the Naperville Sun and other newspapers. So I was covering mainstream movies. So just mm-hmm. in my time, I haven't had a lot of exposure to it. What I understand is that, you know, there has been a higher focus on quality in terms of the production, the money being invested, um, the talent involved in producing faith-based films. Um, that's my understanding of it. I, I would say that even though I don't, um, you know, watch a lot of it, I understand it's it's devotional appeal and value, uh, how it can mm-hmm. affirm certain audiences in their Christian faith, in their Christian faith. The ones that I have seen, which I can, you know, maybe count on my hand. So maybe take that into account. I don't know that I'm as convinced of their evangelical value. So how I they function you. as evangelism. Interesting. Um, and really, that's that just comes back to what is art in general, I would say, even the mainstream art that I appreciate is the stuff that's less preachy yeah. and lets mm-hmm. the audience respond on their own and kind of do some of their work, some of the work on their own. So so I get the devotional aspect of faith based films, the ones that I've seen. I think there's value there. Um, I think sometimes it, it can they can be overrated for their evangelistic value. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a good discerning word. OK, Josh, um, I want to know two quick things. One may be harder than the other, but I'll go easy first. Where can people find you? Where can people follow the things that you're writing and putting out into the world? And then secondly, what's one movie you're super excited about right now? Okay. Yeah. Um, people can find Think Christian at thinkchristian.net. And, you know, we're on Facebook and Twitter as Think Christian as well. If you want to follow me personally, you can find me as Larson on Film. That's L A R S E N. So that's Twitter, Facebook. I'm also on the um, website Letterboxd for movie fans. Um, so, yeah. And then remind me, what was the other question you threw at me? One movie you're excited about right now. Oh, Summer of Soul. Summer of Soul. Yes. This is uh, on Hulu right now, but it's also in select theaters. And it is a music documentary footage that had been lost for about 50 years from the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. Same year as Woodstock. Wow. But no one ever talked about this festival. Um, and it was featuring, um, you know, just giants of R&B gospel. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's an incredible, incredible document. Quest Love um, is the person behind this. It's his first director. He's a musician, but this is his directorial debut. And he puts together footage of Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Sly and wow. the Family Stone, oh, wow. Mahalia Jackson. I mean, for a Christian audience, there's a whole gospel segment of this that you'll just get chills. So that is Summer of Soul. It is playing in select theaters. But if you have Hulu right now, you can watch it. Um, there as well. Cool. That's awesome. And again, Josh Larson is over at, at Think Christian, editor and film critic there, host and producer of the Think Christian podcast, uh, also with the podcast Film Spotting. Josh, this has been a ton of fun, man. Thanks for taking the time with us. Yeah, thanks for being with us, Josh. Thank you both. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on this Thursday afternoon. 
I don't know why I thought of this question even before what you told me that, that you guys are going to be part of a funeral for a stillborn baby tonight, which is just so heartbreaking. Yeah, and it's so really sad. Tragic. And so I guess you're probably in a good uh, mental spot to try to wrestle with this question uh, that I was just thinking about the other day. I was having a conversation with someone. Uh, here's the question. Uh, how do you keep your faith in a time of crisis? Mm. So when things aren't going well, maybe it's a, like a huge crisis, like your uh, your friends here who have lost a baby, yeah. like just an enormous crisis, or it's just uh, life's not going like I thought it would, or uh, things are just feel a little off. It could be job loss, could be health, whatever else it is. I think as pastors, we get this question a lot. Yep. So how do you answer it? How do you keep your faith uh, in a time of crisis? Well, I wrote a little book called The Louder Song. Listen, yes, you did. <laughs> listening for hope in the midst of lament, which is ultimately seeking to answer this question. I'm not trying to be tongue in cheek. That's actually true because I, you know, I've talked about on the show before in 2015, I went through, I, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness and hospitalized. Our son was recovering from spinal cord surgery and I lost a cousin very tragically who was like a brother to me. All of it happened at once. And that was a time of crisis. And, you know, I had been a Christian at that point for over 20 years, uh, but I had not faced such a harrowing um, circumstance before. And I knew a lot about faith. I realized that was a moment when like faith and experience were not matching and I didn't know what to do about it. And Mm. fortunately, the gift in crisis, the gift in suffering, the gift in... um, any type of hardship for the Christian is that the Lord is there. And the, the, I mean, this is the amazing thing about the fact that we have a suffering savior who suffered on the cross for us and suffers with us as we suffer that our seasons of crisis can actually become a catalyst for our faith Mm. in his hands. Mm. But they really are watershed moments. Like crisis either makes you say, forget it. I'm out. I, nope. I don't believe in God. God existed. God would not allow this to happen. Or you lean in more than you ever have before and you find mystery and you find presence and you find um, the goodness of God and you find gifts in crisis, which is, you know, that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. But until you've experienced and walked through that, you know, then, you know, I I think practically a couple of things that I have done in times of crisis, and then I'll let you talk, Brian, but um, even this morning, you know, thinking about this, this service that we're doing, I, I, all day I've been praying the, uh, you know, prayer of the man praying for his sick child. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help mm-hmm. my unbelief. Lord, I believe. And this is a moment as a pastor when you go, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because you are, I mean, like, God, how could, how could, it, how could you possibly allow this to happen? You know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then I go, I go back to, and this is part of what my book, The Louder Song is about, going back to the words of the great lamenters of our faith. If mm. Jeremiah, who wrote the entire book of Lamentations, and honestly, we need to borrow other people's faith in um, in hard, hard seasons, and we can borrow the faith of the biblical lamenters. And so, I think something to do is just pray the prayers of Lamentations three. Lord, I, I you know what, I you shot your ar- your arrows deep into my heart. You have filled me with bitterness. You have given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. Like this is actually in the Bible. This is Jeremiah talking. And yet I still dare to hope when I remember that the faithful love of the Lord never ends. Like these, we have to borrow other people's faith. We have to pray the prayers of scripture that God has given us. And I think the, the biggest thing is 
just don't give up even when you mm-hmm. want to keep going. What about you, Brian? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I have not written a book on it, but I, I've thought. But, you, know. <laughs> you are a pastor and you've walked through hardship. Yeah, and personally walked through hardship, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I do think uh, a recognition and a reminder to ourselves that there is brokenness and hardship in this life. Like sometimes we as Christians have done a disservice to one another by pretending everything's wonderful. Like if you're a good Christian, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Everything's going to be good. Yeah. And it's just not, Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. Um, but then again, like going to the book of Psalms and realizing you've got David there just crying out to God, asking him, where are yep, you? That's right. right? Like, yep. How long, where, oh where? Lord, is this going to last? Yes. Exactly. And this idea of these, uh, that's a man after God's own heart mm-hmm. going, God, why are you quiet? Mm-hmm. Where? What am I supposed to do? Yeah. Uh, that, that God's big enough in those moments uh, for us to cry out frustration and sadness and anger and disappointment. Like that's uh, that is a form of prayer. That's right. <laughs> that that's a form. a form of prayer. That's right. That's right. Uh, and and then, but I think you give one of the uh, two of the most important things. One of them is being, uh, you know, don't isolate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Do not allow yourself to just be like, I'm such a bad spot right now. I'm going to just not talk to anybody. Right. I'm not going to be with anybody. Like, that's when you need your friends. That's when you need your community. Yeah. That's when you need your people. Uh, and, and two, I think it, it sounds somewhat simplistic, but you're called that just keep going. Yeah. Like kind of put one foot in front yeah. of the other. Even if you have to pray, God, I don't know what to pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what to do yep. because, uh, you know, that is so important. And then being reminding ourselves, you know, something we talked about yesterday, just that, uh, this is not, you know, we're in this already not yet. This is not our reality mm. uh, for eternity, that there will be a day when there is no more tears, no more pain, no more cancer, no more yep. death, no more stillborn babies, yep. no more funerals. Yep. Uh, but that day is not here yet. Yeah. But we can hold on to that future hope to kind of give us uh, perseverance. And uh, what would you say? Um, uh, Aubrey, how about this one? We'll close it with this. What would you say to the person who has given up? I'm not sure why they're listening to our yeah, show, but we're excited yeah. that they are. What about the person who went through the death of a loved yeah. one? They went through an illness, whatever else it might be. Uh, and they're just going, you know what? I, I have given up, but I, I don't know. I don't know what to do right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually think that's a really good question, Brian. And I think, one, I get it. I mean, that's what I would start by saying. Yes, you gave up. Yes, it's understandable that you did. You are not alone. And I would say even in that, even in your given upness, even mm-hmm. if you feel like you literally can't put another foot in front of the other, even if you literally feel like you have no faith to stand on, still God is there. Yes. And God comforts those who are brokenhearted. That's the promise. And so I I think the only thing that I could say is like Brian said, reach out to somebody else, someone you trust. And just like Brian said, just say, God, I actually don't believe you right now. God, I actually <laughs> yes. am I actually might hate you right now. God, mm. I I'm saying these words. I might be praying to the ceiling fan right now. Um, but can you somehow show up here? And I I think just those honest, honest prayers are some of the most faithful prayers we can pray. And then you don't have to do anything else except let God love you and let God meet you there. And I'm telling you, he will. Mm. Um, What Kevin often says, and, and I'll end with this, Kevin often says that, um, 
if you are totally dead spiritually, it means that like nothing's going on emotionally. But if you even have a sense that you're frustrated, if you even mm-hmm. have a sense that you're angry, if you even have a any type of emotion, whether it's you're so angry or you're so numb or any any type of emotion is movement. And that's a sign that God is there. So lean into that and and also just let him love you. Like Remember that you don't have to do much more than let God love you. That's a great word. So that's one of our hopes of this show is to just take the hard questions of life and go, let's talk about it. Yeah. Let's uh, have that conversation. I would, uh, I know Aubrey wouldn't do this, but I would encourage you to go pick up her book, A Louder Song, uh, that deals with this exact thing. So go ahead and do that uh, wherever books are sold. Uh, all right. This is a strong right turn. We're going to go from talking about crisis of faith to Disney. <laughs> <laughs> That's life right there. We're going to talk about something interesting that Disney is doing that kind of speaks to how do we use our money? How do we view money? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about the way we spend our money and what that reveals about our worship. And we're joined by Pete Hardesty, national best-selling author, to discuss one of his books, Adulting 101, and how we can equip the next generation. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this... It's Thursday, right? Thursday afternoon. Yes, all day. All yes. week long, I have been so turned around about what day it is because of the 5th. So I, it, now I know it's officially Thursday. Thursday. It is Thursday. And it's a big Thursday in the Chicago suburbs because the president of the United States of America is here. Well, I think he was here yesterday. Oh, yeah, he was yesterday. here yesterday. Oh, so yesterday him. was a big Wednesday. Yes. I missed him. <laughs> See, that's what happens when you don't know what day it is. Oh, well. I, Man, but he spent his Wednesday here, but but you are right. It is big whenever, whatever, regardless of your politics, it right, is big right. whenever a president comes. I'll never forget. This is a bit of a tangent. My uh, uh, when I was, I guess this would have been leading into the 2000 election. Uh, I all of okay. a sudden one morning I was a youth pastor and I heard that uh, uh, at that point, candidate uh, George W. Bush was at COD for a rally. And I just went over there. I just went over there and I watched it and I literally got in the line and shook his hand. I was like, this is the coolest (laughs) thing ever. That's so fun. Oh, how fun. My point being, there is something just, there's still some pomp and circumstance to the office of the president, right? And so the fact that he was in Crystal Lake yesterday does feel kind of like a big deal. Yeah, it feels like a big deal. And apparently I missed it. But he was here pitching his proposed investments for families and education in Illinois. And I'm talking about how what's good for families is good for the economy, which is a good segue to what I want to talk about, (laughs) which is about the way we spend our money. Okay, so here's what made me think about this, Brian. And I have a little audio for you. I'm ready. You and I are big fans of Disney theme parks, especially Disney World. Is that fair to say? That is very fair to say. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we love Disney. The price of Disney has continued to go up and up and up over the <laughs> yes. years, which is very painful for people who love Disney theme parks. But recently, Disney announced that in Disneyland Paris. Now, if you're not familiar with Disney, I'm going to give you a little bit of detail here. But at Disney, there's something called Fast Passes, where basically mm-hmm. you go, you get a time to return to a ride so you don't have to wait in this really long line. You get to go in what's called the Fast Pass lane. 
that's always been free with your ticket to Disneyland Parks. But Disneyland Paris just announced that they're replacing their Fast Pass with a pay per ride service. And the fear, of course, is that now all of the Disney parks are going to go this way, where if you want to skip the lines, you have to pay a fee. Let's listen to some of that audio about this new payment service. So today, Disney announced this new paid service coming to Disneyland Paris, replacing free fast passes called Disney Premier Access. In this press release, Disney announces this summer, Disney Premier Access will be launching at Disneyland Paris, where guests will be able to skip the regular line at some of their most beloved attractions. What you will do is pay for your ticket to get into the park. You still have to make a park pass reservation. Not only are those not going away at Walt Disney World, they're also not going away at Disneyland Paris either, Disney says. So on top of your park, reservation and then paying for the park itself, your park admission, then now you're going to pay per person per ride to access the premier access line. Okay. So now here's, here's really the ultimate question. I mean, Brian here, well, here's not the ultimate question. Here's one question. Would you pay for this service? I knew that's what you're going to ask. Because because time in many ways, time is our greatest commodity, even more than money. So what they're banking on is that you will pay to right. get back some of your time. Right. And there is nothing worse at Disney World than when you're excited to be there. You get in the line for Dumbo with your kids that lasts like, I don't know, two minutes, three minutes. And all of a sudden it's like it's an hour 10 to get there. Totally. And so uh, I totally get this. I'm mm, I think here's what I would probably do. I'm going to hedge my bet here because my okay. first inclination was to say, no, I wouldn't do it because my cheapness goes above my desire to skip lines. But I, what I actually think what I actually think would end up happening is if I've paid the money to get to Disney World, I would probably budget a little bit of money. And my wife and I would say something like this. We're going to buy two fast passes on the day. Which one do you want to do? Yeah. Uh, so you pick you pick like the best ride or whatever. The, the one you really want. So I don't think I would go in there with like unlimited funds. I'm just going to fast pass everything. But I also don't think I would tell my kids, hey, we're not fast. Maybe I would say something like this. Let's as a family choose one or two. We'll pay for them. And the rest of the day, you're waiting in line. How about you? You, you are a Disney World <sighs> aficionado. What would you do? Yeah, I, I think this is like I, I'm battling a little bit because I think I would pay for it very bitterly, but I would pay for it. Like this is the part that I this is what I'm like having sort of a battle in my soul because I know I will return to the Disney theme parks. I know I'm going to wish I had the fast passes. So I think I would pay, but I think I would be really annoyed that I had to that they're forcing me to pay when everything else is so expensive. But I guess they're not forcing you. It's it's really a choice, Correct. which is ultimately what I think the bigger question is, is, OK, we know that where we put our money ultimately shows a lot, reveals a lot about what we worship. And the fact is, like, I will put my money at Disney theme parks because I love them. And there are some times when I feel convicted about that. Like, should I be using my money towards, you know, something else? Should I? Does Disney have my heart in a way that like the church does it, you know? And I wonder for all of us Christians and Brian, maybe you can speak to this as a pastor. How do we know if something has become an idol and we're, you know, when we're spending too much money on it, like what's the line there between just having fun and enjoying life and actually worshiping something with our money? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, it would probably be a little bit of the reverse. I would, 
I would probably answer that question by looking at, do I give any of my money away towards mm. church or charity or towards helping other people? Like I wouldn't feel guilty uh, about, you know, saving up and and treating my kids and mm-hmm. my family to Disney world or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think you would start to feel some conviction rightfully. So if that was a hundred percent of your money, like if I looked at my, no one looks yeah. at the checkbook anymore, but metaphorically, if I looked at my checkbook, and it showed that a hundred percent of my finances were spent on me and my family, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, especially, let me add caveat with this. Especially, assuming you've got some discretionary income, uh, that Obviously, that kind yeah, of works good. under this assumption. Then I think that you would rightfully feel some conviction, and you have to rethink a little bit about how you are. But I would. I don't think using some money for, uh, you know. For, for the enjoyment of your family is a bad thing. But if you're like going to Disney World four times a year and not giving to your church or to charity or whatever, that's a you question. probably you yeah. probably have some issues to ask yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, the Gospel Coalition a few years ago put out an article, Five Lies Christians Tell About Money. And I'm going to read them to you very quickly, Brian. I want you to respond to like okay. any that just stand out to you. Okay. The first one is God cares more about my heart than what I do with my money. This is a lie. Okay. That... Of course, God cares about our hearts, but there's that faith and works connection with our money that cannot be ignored. And money is a big deal in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Number two, I know I need to give, but how much does it matter so long as I give something? Um, This third one is debt is unavoidable and not a problem so long as I pay it back and maintain good credit. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about that one. (laughs) Four, God will prosper me financially if I work hard and have enough faith. And five, God has promised to take care of me so I don't have to worry about money. What do you think about those? Those are all really good. You you said you wanted to know what I thought about the debt one, so I'll give yeah. you that one. Uh, I, I there's a there's is a point to that, right? Like there is a point to where you go, hey, I know that I will pay things off, so therefore we're gonna take the zero percent finance plan on X. I've got a couple of those in my yep. own life right now, yep. right? Our, we're paying our bed off that way, we're paying our refrigerator off that yeah, way. Yeah. We're paying our new uh uh, you know. Um, boy, yeah, a, a bunch of things. With that said, don't forget credit card companies exist to make money off of you. They That's don't good. exist because like they believe you, right? they don't exist because they believe that you're going to pay everything off. Yeah. And it, and, and when you live like that, you're usually, even if you're good about it and you're like, you know what? No, I'm paying everything off. You become only one thing away, one step away, one catastrophe, one thing away, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my car breaks down or there's a medical bill or whatever from not being able to pay things off. And now you start getting all the bad things about buying things on credit. So I I would say at the very best, be really careful with that one. Yeah, that's that's good. All right. Well, let's all be thinking about the way we spend our money. Is it honoring God in our having fun and also in our giving? I think that's a good lesson for all of us. And then should I go to Disney is really the that's really it. The, really the important question. Well, stick around. We are joined by Pete Hardesty, a national bestselling author. He's part of Young Life and he has a new book out, Adulting 101, book two. So this is two of a series in adulting. It's going to be a really good one. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. 
My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined uh, by a national best-selling author, also the divisional college coordinator in the Eastern United States for Young Life, the author, uh, co-author of a new book called Adulting 101. His name is Pete Hardesty. Pete, how are you doing today? Brian, better than I deserve, that's for sure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Hey, before we dive into the book that just looks uh, looks really good, before we do that, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. Thanks. Uh, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and came down to University of Virginia for college. Uh, I was pre-med with the emphasis on pre, for sure. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, I went on Young Life staff right out of uh, college and spent some time in Virginia Beach. And then my my the longest time in Harrisonburg, Virginia, a little town that we're famous for JMU, James Madison University is in mm-hmm. our town. And then just moved up near DC about four years ago. And I've been on Young Life staff the whole time, uh, going on, I think, 24 years this month. That's oh, that's awesome. awesome. Can't that's get rid great. of me. <laughs> <laughs> they can't lose you. <laughs> Pete, um, so your new book, this is Adulting 101 Book 2. What prompted you to write maybe the first one and now this one? Yeah, it's a super uh, creative title, right, Aubrey? <laughs> 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 the first one, uh, you know, I, I had I mentored a guy in college named Josh Burnett, the co-author. And about three or four years after he graduated, he, he called me and, and I was still in touch with him. And he said, Pete, you know, I, I sold all my college textbooks back. Uh, I haven't cracked one of those, haven't used much from those. But I would do a little senior life prep course with my seniors at James Madison. And he said, I've used that stuff a ton. And he shared it with, he runs a Chick-fil-A at that time in Arkansas. And he shared it with the Arkansas Chick-fil-A operators. They loved it, shared it with their teams, came back to him and said, you need to publish this. And he came to me and said, hey, this is 80% your stuff. He had added some business stuff to it. He said, you want to do this together? And I said, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Because we realized that school really doesn't, might not prepare you for the real world as well as it could and should. Yeah, mm. and, and you begin the book uh, talking about the subject of self-awareness. Mm. Uh, and I'd love for you, what, what do you mean by self-awareness and why is this so important to the idea of adulthood? Yeah, Brian, self-awareness really coupled with emotional intelligence might be the most important thing for us to learn in our 20s. Hmm. We're give some, we give some thoughts about that, some, some science and articles and studies, uh, because it affects everything in our life, every relationship we have, every, you know, from the workplace to the home, to family, to romantic relationships, to friendships, to, you know, if, if the more self-aware we are, I re- we, we include this one study, they did a 30 year study with people. The one determiner of how happy people were down, down the, down the road and how much money they made. I don't know if those two things go together was, <laughs> how self-aware they were. Wow. 83% of people uh, believe they're self-aware. And the real number is probably 10 to 15%. So 70 70 to 75% of us are lying to ourselves every day and other people about how (laughs) self-aware. That's that's a little bit, that number is a little bit startling to hear. You kind of think like, oh, I can't be one of those people, but I don't know how self-aware that is. So that's good Good for us to know. Which percent are you? That's the question. Exactly. Uh, Pete, one of the things that you write about is actually one of the things we talk about here on The Common Good, which is about communicating with etiquette, with civility on social media. Uh, Can you talk to us about what young adults should remember about communicating through social media? Oh my gosh. Yes. Aubrey, we have two chapters on social media. uh, And really the overarching thing is how to have a healthy relationship with social media, but how we treat people is kind of core to that. 
It is wild. I find myself even doing this. I'll say stuff on social media that I would never, ever, ever in a million years say to someone that they're standing in front of. Isn't that true? Yep. Because to remain nameless, faceless, no responsibility. I think for me too, one of the big things is remembering that every single person on earth is of infinite value and has dignity. That's a Christian Mm. belief. Like that if they're created by God, they have the divine spark in them. And, you know, I think we've, we've, our young people have been taught that if you disagree with someone, you need to one, discount them, come at them, uh, be, you know, uh, have ferocious animosity towards them. Yeah. And that's just not true. We learn we're actually better people if we dialogue with folks that we disagree with on all kinds of issues. And so that, that's, you know, we talk about that a little bit of siloing up. You know, we can't, that's one of the dangers of social media is, uh, you know, just being around people that believe the same stuff as us. Hmm. Yeah. Thinking about social media, again, people kind of getting into their adulthood now, maybe mid early 20s, they are living in a world that none of us lived in. Right. When Mm -hmm. when they were coming in. So so what are some helpful tips that you give people that was good about how to interact on social media, but just how to live with social media? Like how what what are some tips that you uh, give people as they're getting older about how to deal with Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and all of the other social media kind of things pounding at them? Ryan, I wish I knew that chapter was blown. no. <laughs> we gave a ton of tips. Uh, we have one, basically one half of the a chapter dealing with that. But a couple of things that I've and and I wrestle with this and struggle with this just as much maybe as anyone else uh, is to to de- decide intentionally how much time do you want to spend on social media because that's the danger. It's just I just reach for it and just mindlessly start to scroll right. and swipe and. If you've ever, you know, if you've seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma, it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to schedule your time, decide how much you want to spend. Uh, the, the, the the app on an iPhone called Screen Time is is helpful for this because it, if you, you know, you can find it, it'll tell you how much time and even break it down with how much time you spent. The first time I looked at that for the week long report, I thought that thing is lying. That, that's a liar. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, believe the amount of time. But the airplane mode button is your best friend. Uh, hmm. You know, to just uh, to focus. And I would say you, I, I use social media as a reward a little bit. It's like I'll kind mm. of for an hour, an hour and a half. I, I would say this: try turning off all your notifications. I have all my social media notifications off. I did Good. this about a year ago. And it will change your life. And you know what? Wow. I haven't missed anything super important. That's the crazy. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Last thing that really helps is don't look at your phone first thing in the morning or last thing at night, which most mm. of us do. Um, because that will it trains your brain, it changes us physiologically, but it also, you know, it, it also allows social media and what we're scrolling through to determine the last thing we go to bed on our minds and hearts, and then the first thing it kind of sets the course of our day. And I don't want Snapchat Mm -hmm. or Instagram (laughs) setting the course for my day. I just don't want want to do it. That's good. That's good. That's a good word for all of us, Pete. Um, you know, we're, we're hearing more and more, I think, you know, especially coming out of the pandemic that anxiety has become almost normal kind of, uh, yeah, just every day for a lot of 20-somethings. And it's something that you write about is really understanding helpful anxiety versus harmful anxiety. Could you explain that for our listeners? Mm. Yeah. You know, these are a couple quotes from some 20-somethings over the last year. My anxiety has gone up a thousand percent. I used to, I love spending time on screens, but now I hate them because that is all I do. 
Um, we have that love hate relationship, but helpful and harmful anxiety. Uh, for me, I learned that I thought all anxiety was bad. Don't be anxious, get yourself together. Don't be nervous, but there's actually, there's helpful and good anxiety. That's actually our body's response to something that maybe we want to kind of, you know, if you're about to go out on stage and give a talk, if you're about to go in for an important meeting or an interview, if you're about to go on a date, if you're about to, whatever you're going to do, uh, that's our body saying, Hey, let's, let's get alert. Let's get, get, uh, get, get, get it together. Um, but then the harmful part is when the anxiety, it kind of starts to be more common and widespread and more intense and starts to affect your day-to-day life and sometimes doesn't even seem to have an actual cause. And so the first thing we need to do is kind of determine between the two of those because anxiety affects over one third of young people. That's an NIH, National Institutes of Mental Health, NIMH uh, stat, mm-hmm. and especially those in college. I mean, it's and 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 it, for, mental health was fragile before the pandemic, and then the pandemic has uh, worsened it to a huge degree. Wow. Uh, again, the book is Adulting 101. One of the authors is Pete Hardesty. We're excited that Pete's going to stay with us. Let me ask you this about kind of that next generation moving into adulthood. Um, What's their relationship with the church right now? Like, I, I ask that for this reason. We've seen all of the studies that say people in their young to mid to late 20s are kind of fleeing the church and leaving the church. Is that what you're seeing? And just how would you describe their relationship with the church right now? Ryan, I, I, I would say it's complicated. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. a lot of things are yeah. complicated. Yeah. I do think that this, this generation, uh, it seems like from the public eye has gotten a bad rap. You know, they say they're entitled. Uh, they're they're not really hard workers. They're um, and some of that. I think there's probably some elements of that that in in from good intentions, parents and society has gone from preparing kids, you know, really helping them to kind of have what it takes to to succeed in life to protecting them. We've wrapped all these kids in bubble wrap. The number of broken arms has gone down. You know, I remember, honestly, I'm in my 40s, but my my mom's Italian. And she'd be like, I'd leave in the morning and she'd be like, be back by six or get beat, you know, get beat. And so I was always home by six. (laughs) But she didn't know what it was. It was like the the one rule was like, don't go down and play with in the raw sewage in that creek. It's like, that's the one rule. Okay. But she didn't know where I was, what house. Now it's like kids have been able to have to check in every 20 minutes and safety has become this penultimate goal instead of preparation. And, and so a lot of times, I don't know if you've, you've heard of helicopter parents, and, but now they've, they've said that sure, they yeah. moved to snowplow parents, clearing like a snowplow kind of clears the road for the people behind it. So these snowplow parents have kind of started to clear the road for these kids to, to, you know, to try to prepare the road for the kid instead of the kid for the road. And so how that how that factors in the spiritual practice is I think this generation is some of the most open to spirituality that I've seen. I've only been working with kids for about 20, 25 years. But over that time, I would say that especially college students and young 20-somethings, they're looking for answers, but they have found some of what they perceive to be Christianity to be wanting. And then I think that, that mm. that's that's on us, you know, as people that follow Jesus, because what we the Jesus that we've showed to kids is not the real Jesus. It's a kind of mm. dumbed down. We, we put him in bubble wrap <laughs> instead of this yeah. wild. I look at the Bible. I mean, sometimes when I speak, I say, you know, the stuff in the Bible. Do you know that Moses murdered somebody? 
like, and then hid the body. <laughs> How many people know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of these heroes, uh, quote, quote, heroes of the faith did some really bad stuff and some exciting stuff and adventuresome stuff and terrible stuff. And if you look in the Bible, it's, and we've made it this, uh, just tiptoe around weak, hmm. not meek. We've made it weak, uh, hide in the corner. Uh, and that's not who Jesus was. So anyway, hmm. I think that if kid, if these kids get a real look at who Jesus really is, and you think of like who he would be hanging around with, I mean, we, we've, how many people know that Jesus hung out with prostitutes? <laughs> like right. if right. you think of the worst place in Chicago, go to that place, the block that, and he'd be there. He'd be hanging out. Most, most 20 yep. somethings who didn't grow up, if they grew up in the church or didn't, would not believe that Jesus would hang out with those type of people. And, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I think that's, that's one of the keys is that, and relationally, we would show up in their lives to kind of show them this is who he is. And this is what the church would offer. The church should be the, the ones who are kind of running into the craziness of the world and brokenness mm-hmm. of the world. Running into mm, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Pete, let me almost reverse that question. What can the older generation be learning from the next generation right now? That's a great question. I, I think that this generation is one of the most globally aware. You know, when I was in college, uh, the way the way I heard about what happened in the state or the country or the world was a little. I mean, we didn't watch the news on TV; we watched sports. Was a little box in the student newspaper, like, and the student newspaper might be ten pages long, but two or three small boxes was like the world news, the country news, and the state of Virginia news. But now everything gets beamed to our pocket onto our phone in live time. Yeah. That's another thing to remember. We're not meant to know that. We're not meant to know every single tragedy and everything going on. But I will say that kids nowadays, I mean, 20-somethings want mission in their work more than any, I think, any generation to date. It used to be, you know, probably maybe the generation before mine, it was like, get out of college, try to go to college if you can, great. Then get out of college and go into a business and then just do that job for 35 years. Mm. Whatever that is, making widgets running papers, you know, running a trash truck, whatever you're doing. But now kid like the 20 somethings, they want actually meaning in their work. They want to have, you know, mission, they want to have purpose and we can help them find that because all, you know, legal, mostly like most work and all legal work is as dignity because of how God created, you know, how he kind of made the universe, one of the laws of reality. So we can help them find that also help, helping them temper expectations. You know, 81 or 82% of Gen Z believe they deserve a promotion in the first year of work. That's not going to yeah. be good for them. Because, you know, n- month nine, they're kind of like looking at their boss like, okay, do, should we have a meeting? Are you ready to talk? You know, like, well, about what? What are you talking about? You know, like that's just, I think, having clear expectations about work. And your first job is not your last job. Your first yeah. job is not your final job. You're not, your first job is not your forever job. But if you look at jobs as stepping stones and just jumping around, that's not going to be good. You know, that's not going to do well for you. You're not going to actually succeed. So I think we can help them and tell them two things. One, work really, 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 really hard. And two, help others in your work succeed. Like if you help Mm -hmm. others around your workplace, you'll actually succeed. It's this counterintuitive thing, another law of reality that God has kind of written in. So I think they're the two of the things that we can help them with. 
That's great. And Pete, we're glad that you've been with us as we start to close up. I guess I would want to close this as we talk about the next generation, quote unquote, uh, people kind of in their young 20s, mid 20s, kind of moving into adulthood. Uh, they kind of become the torchbearers, right, of the church. They, they are the leaders going forward. Uh, I guess I would just ask you this with that in mind. Are you hopeful for the church? Are you excited to see what this next generation brings about? And if you are, then what gives you that hope? Brian, I am uber hopeful. Uh, <laughs> to see some of these young people, uh, once they taste seeing eternity change in someone, and once if you really believe that this is just a little blip, our, our life here, it's very important because the decisions we make here determine eternity. And once you taste of eternity, nothing else tastes the same. And so mm. you can affect eternity from any job, from any kind of role. Um, and I think when, when these young people taste that, they're willing to really dive down, jump into it two feet in. And I've seen them really be go all out, you know, like, and, and with, mm-hmm. with kind of the remote culture, with no ties, with having to go into the office, I think this next, the next five or 10 years will be very interesting kingdom wise. If we can help them, there is one thing I think that my one hope for them is that as they learn to be grounded and to learn the Bible a little better, uh, to, and also have kind of some people around them, a Paul and a Timothy, you know, Paul helping them on their path and then a Timothy, them investing in. But I'm very hopeful for this next generation. That's great. Again, the book is Adulting 101, uh, written by Pete Hardesty alongside Josh Burnett. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about Pete, get to know him a little better, let me point you to his website, PeteHardesty.com. That is PeteHardesty.com. Pete, it's great to meet you. Love the book. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been really fun. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we hope, again, it's not the afternoon, it's now the evening. So That's I right. hope you're headed home to a wonderful, wonderful Thursday night. Do you guys have anything planned, Brian? No, Carrie is out of town. I'm always the baseball guy, but oh, Carrie but is actually out of town it. with Jackson. And so I'm home with both my daughters. I love it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that my oldest daughter will be out. So, you know, no, I'm keeping it is my job and my job alone for the next couple days to make sure the from household continues well done uh, progresses so we shall see uh let me ask me on monday how that went okay okay (laughs) i I will ask you i hope it goes well for you well we hope the rest of you are having a great thursday night all right brian i um i don't know if you remember this actress tia maori she's from sister sister growing up she and her twin sister had this great television show she's been on a lot of our favorite movies disney channel original movies or decoms as they're called and uh, she was on Good Morning America recently just talking about different topics. And I wanted to play some audio for you. She's describing a picture that she posted with her kids. Let's go ahead and listen to that. And I want to hear your reaction. So this is a photo that I had posted on my Instagram. And we're all in our PJs. I have a pacifier in my mouth. Cree, I believe, he has my coffee and he has Cairo's um, milk bottle, or was with um, actually my breast milk. I wanted to show the authenticity that comes along with being a mother and having a, a baby. As you can see, my hair is not done. I'm not in fancy clothes. I'm just me being me. 
you know, on social media, I feel like we celebrate perfection um, and we don't embrace our flaws. And so I just wanted to um, encourage and inspire so many women out there that this is what motherhood looks like. It's not perfect. It's not glamorous. And that is okay. Okay, so that's Tia, you know, talking about how she's tired of how we always celebrate perfection and she wanted to show something real. If you have a second, you can go to goodmorningamerica.com, look up the video and see the picture she posted. It's actually pretty hilarious. But what do you think about that, Brian? Posting on social media and keeping it real. Yeah, I think it, uh, it's an important thing, right? Because one of the hard parts about our culture right now is that uh, – we all post our best on Facebook or Twitter yeah. or Instagram. And therefore, the, the struggle with that is you see everyone else's best, but you think that's their real life. And so it makes you feel <laughs> right. bad about yourself. So there is something um, helpful if we all kind of, as a society, were like, nope, this is, I'm going to post the good and the bad. I'm going to post this. There's a flip side to this. Sometimes you just need to not post. And there you um, go. This whole being real it could get a little over the top. Like sometimes posting real stuff, it, there's no need to even post them. Like <laughs> that's exactly you know I mean? right. Yeah. I, I like, I want to, I want to, you know, kind of also acknowledge there's just over sharers and over posters out there who are like, Oh, I'm going to post about my real self. How about just go live your real life and How not about post just go live and your so, life. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's like that to me feels like the heart of some of this is that we've talked about this even this week. People are not commodities. And so you don't have to put your entire personal life online for people to consume. You're allowed to have a private life. You're allowed to have agency. And so I understand the call to being authentic. And that I think that ultimately people are saying, don't post filtered, beautiful pictures constantly, right? right? I mean, post- I feel convicted about that. Like, I guess I'm going to need to take out the filtered, beautiful pictures that I post all the time. But- <laughs> you do post a lot of those, like modeling pictures where there's a fan blowing your hair, Brian. All the time, all you the time. But- all your good lighting pictures. But yeah, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, if people if people just go check out, you know, our Instagram, our Instagram or Facebook page, they'll see that. They'll see that. Yeah. That's clear. But in all honesty, uh, it does speak to. Uh, the the value that we put on social media, the a the fact that we feel like uh, we need to do that at all, right? Like, oh, I need people to see the best of me. But the flip mm. side, that other people's posts have uh, such an impact on us that you know we would look at you know that that I would look at a post that you put up about your family on vacation and f- immediately feel bad about myself cuz we're not on vacation not yeah. realizing you're not spending your whole life on vacation you guys <laughs> just happen to be on vacation right now right we happen to post one picture on vacation right but it is amazing how quickly your soul can kind of be like all twisted and squashed when comparing yourself to other people on social media it's so true. And so I think that be, and churches do this, right? Like, have you mm. here, Aubrey, people may be really surprised to hear this. I came to learn a couple of years ago that I needed because uh, I follow a lot of pastors. Yeah. And this and that. Uh, here's confession time. I decided that I actually needed to avoid Facebook and Twitter uh, and Instagram uh, for on Easter Sunday and a couple days following. Interesting. Now, tell me why. Talk about that. Because every pastor was posting, we had 11 baptisms, Mm -hmm. 15 people came to Christ. Uh, You know, and again, they're only posting it because they had good news to share. But 
it in a weird way. If I didn't have that at my church, it made me feel badly. It like, like oh. triggered you or something. Yeah. yeah that's did so I fail Easter? Right. Did we just fail Easter? It's oh, literally so one sad. year. One year, but it's the same concept, yeah, right? And so one is. year, one year, I was just like, I can't do that. I'm going to proactively not look at this on the couple days after Easter because nobody was posting like. Yeah, pretty normal Easter service. The very average service. Yeah, you know, it was great. We sung and we worshiped, and uh, but this is kind of just, you know, it was another service. But it was all about uh, all this stuff that happens. And so, you know, I I, I think we do that in our day-to-day lives. That's and so we get true. so much of our own self-worth from our what we're able to post in and then our self-worth takes a knock when we see what other people are posting. So, yeah, I think keeping it real is good. But sometimes we put such a value on, quote unquote, keeping it real that that just becomes performative as well. So Totally. Yeah, that's such a that's such an interesting thought. Yeah. I think you're so right about that. So maybe the answer is just let's post a little bit less. Just in general, let's post a little bit less. Yeah, and, like you uh, don't have to post life. everything. Go live your life. Post things that add value instead of add noise. Like, I feel like those are some good. Those are some good thoughts. I do. I'll say one more thing quickly. I have a friend, Brian, who's a pastor, and she actually decided a few years ago, like she was done following any pastor that sort of had quote unquote celebrity about them, like because Mm. and not because she was trying to judge them, but because she recognized what it did in her own heart. And so she's like, I only follow pastors that are just like leading small churches, serving locally, do they don't have book deals they don't have conference events they're just sort of doing their thing faithfully loving their church and that really helped her soul so i think those are some decisions we can make around our social media as well uh when yeah when when we when we post who we follow all of those things are really 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 important when we think about uh, social media. Anyway, we hope that encourages encourages you today. If you're wrestling with your own social media, keep it real, but don't overshare. There I feel like go. that's a good that's a good line for all. There of you us. go. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the common good today. We will be back tomorrow from four to six p.m. on AM eleven sixty. And Brian, is there anything else? We do we have any other announcements to make? We have a really good show for you tomorrow because we're doing. A top five list. A top five list. Yes. Yes. I was like, what does she think? What am I forgetting? But yes, yeah. just the top five list. Uh, we've It's in the works. We know what it is going to be. And it's going to be our most random. And I'm guessing, therefore, one of our most fun top five lists. I think one of our best top five lists to come. So we hope you'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson. And you've been listening to The Common Good. <laughs> 